Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sharika Hallelujah. Now, when we bring up the word racism, there are probably a heap of instances that you immediately think of, and hopefully if you're tuning into the show, you're aware of the complexities of what this means. But it's quite rare to think about how this shows up in one's intimate, internal world and how it could manifest in bodily responses. This is what makes the beginnings of a piece that has been in the works for some time now by FBI radio host and first-time Race Matters producer Malika Gazula. In a piece you're about to hear, Malika mapped her ongoing journey and reckonings with how the racism and colorism she has long experienced that has had a profound impact on her mental and physical health, of finding awareness and resilience. She spoke to music therapist and Asian-Australian mental health advocate Asami Koiker. They bring together how broader systems of injustice play out in interpersonal relationships, trauma and healing, and the ways we can move towards a type of care that recognises the intricacies of being a racialized person and how we find our own versions of resilience and regulation. A heads up, this is an intense but needed story to hear. A content note that this story revolves around racial trauma and has mention of trauma, anti-Asian racism, colorism, and references to statistics on suicide and self-harm. Whilst not discussed in detail, we ask that you go gently, surround yourself with some comforts, or come back to this at a time that feels okay for you.
One of my earliest memories was just starting school and becoming obsessed with my skin. My mother recounts a grim memory of me coming home from school in kindergarten and pointing to the porcelain toilet and saying I wished my skin was that colour. Over time, spending my formative years constantly surrounded by white people, my beliefs that I am less worthy were confirmed over and over again. I had internalised a deep resentment for my culture and appearance. What began when I was younger as a desperation to be white matured into a tolerance for my skin. Instead, that resentment lived quietly and restrained deep in my consciousness. It is fairly well known that racial trauma can have adverse mental health effects for people of colour. What is less known is that it can cause physical health issues as well. I'm Malika Gazula. You may know me from Up For It here at FBI Radio. But this is the first time I'm sitting down with Race Matters to share my story with racism and health and learn from a very special guest. When making this piece, I really wanted to find the right person to help me make sense of my experience. I spoke to Asami Koikare from Shapes and Sounds about music therapy, Asian Australian mental health, and how racism can impact our mind and our bodies. Shapes and Sounds is the leading voice for Asian Australian mental health, and they provide culturally responsive information and advice for Asian Australians seeking to improve their mental health. I knew Asami would be the perfect person to talk to. I began by asking her why she started Shapes and Sounds in the first place and the importance of having a culturally attuned mental health practice. A content note that our conversations delve into experiences of racial trauma. There's also mention of how Asian Australians experience acute mental health symptoms and are being underserved by the mental health system. I started Shapes and Sounds um, just as a blog, actually, in very late 2019. And that was following about five years of working in an acute and crisis mental health service for young people. Essentially, as I was working there, I started to notice that there were young people of colour and specifically Asian young people who were sort of slipping through the cracks or disengaging from service quite quickly, just kind of like um, just disappearing and I started to get really curious about this. I'd never really thought about culture in the context of mental health. Every time I would bring this up to management, I'd be like, have you noticed there are some Asian kids slipping through the cracks? The answer that I kept on getting was like, let's hire more interpreters or make sure we have more interpreters readily available and we'll translate more of our documents into different languages. And I think it was really that spark of like, hang on a sec, I feel like everyone's speaking English here, like I'm speaking English. I feel like the young people that we're supporting are speaking English. And that really started me on this journey of understanding that a lot of our mental health services, they see language as a priority, but they don't really address or acknowledge the cultural nuances, especially amongst the diaspora population. And that lack of seeing those cultural nuances makes it really hard for people to access mental health services. And yes, I, I know that there is a lot of negative stigma around mental health in Asian communities, but at the same time, I know so many people and I've seen it as a therapist, so many people trying to engage in mental health services. And then the therapist might say something about boundaries with your family or 
or things that just are very, very different for collectivist cultures or people of different identities. And then those people are like, oh, well, maybe therapy is not for me. Maybe, um, maybe I'm not supposed to go to mental health services or this confirms my belief that, oh, mental health services aren't for me. They don't work. And then that season disengaging from service. So for me, I really just started writing about things that I'd witnessed in my work as a therapist, um, as well as my own experiences of growing up Asian in Australia in a little blog. And thanks to the algorithm and the internet, <laughs> um, um, some people organically gained interest in what I was talking about. And what I first started to hear was anytime I would talk about um, Asian mental health, the first question that people would ask me was, oh, do you know an Asian therapist that you could recommend for me? Um, and so then I was like, oh, wow, maybe this cultural barrier or this barrier of not having a psychologist that you feel that doesn't really represent you, maybe that's a barrier for many people accessing mental health services. So I started to compile a list of mental health practitioners contacting them one by one and compiling this list of really incredible Asian diaspora mental health practitioners um, that now a lot of people access and that drives most of the traffic to our website. And from there, we became a company in December 2020 and then started delivering programs and resources to the community from about Feb 21. So it's been a very kind of organic process, I would say, that's emerged from things that I'd seen um, in my work. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's no surprise to me that um, Shapes and Sounds caught um, quite a bit of steam because it is such a huge problem that there isn't a lot of existing resources. Like I know when I was first reaching out because I wanted a psychologist um, and I had an experience with a psychologist who was suggesting things to me like you need to be more open with your parents or like you need to let your parents into like who you really are. Like all of these, um, I, like I received a lot of advice basically that just felt like it didn't understand what it was like to grow up with Asian family and, um, you know, in an Asian household. Um, so I think, yeah, seeing or, or finding a service like this, um, which is, I guess, unpacking that is it seems like something which should exist in lots of different ways. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's really amazing that um, people are sort of catching on to it and are able to benefit from what you have to offer. Um, and you have also chosen the path of music therapy, um, and I don't know a lot about that. So I would I would love to know, um, I guess, why you were drawn to that and how it, how it works. What's interesting about music therapy, actually, is that we work across the whole spectrum of life. So you'll find music therapists um, in the neonatal unit all the way to aged care, palliative care, and everything in between. So because there's only a small amount of us and we're spread across a whole lifespan, most people start to specialize in one age group or one kind of particular sector. For me, I've spent a lot of time working in youth mental health and in trauma, um, and that was an area that I've always been interested in. And... In my area of work, it kind of looks very different. Like if you're in rehab, it looks very different to the work that I'm doing in mental health. But for me, I would say that especially in the context of young people and trauma, you know, often we don't have the language to talk about 
the horrors that we've experienced, right? And that is one way in, in which trauma forms, that you actually don't have the capacity to process and understand and explain and communicate all the things that you've gone through. But the incredible thing about music is that um, there are so many songs out there that can like 100% depict exactly what you've gone through. I'm sure you've had experiences like this where you listen to a song and you're like, I feel like this was written for me. It It's really like what I've seen in my work is um, young people coming in and being like, I'm not going to tell you about what happened to me, but just listen to this song and you'll know, right? And that actually forms the very, very beginnings of therapeutic engagement. A lot of young people resist therapy because of the stigma, because of just the confronting nature of sitting one-to-one and talking to someone. But imagine if you're offered something like, music like we're going to use music and we're going to talk about music and we're going to use music in a therapeutic manner and that's going to slowly help you one regulate the system you know music the beat it physically entrains you it helps you to lower your heart rate your breathing it helps you to feel physically safe and then from there then you can move into talking about the lyrics or kind of using music as a modality to express and share what you've gone through Often I think it's really hard to talk about traumatic experiences, but many people, they find their relief in that outlet through creative expressions, through songwriting, through dancing, through movement, through drawing, through painting. And so it's really important that we acknowledge that talking is not the only way. And we know that trauma doesn't live like in the brain, in the cognitive part of our brain, but it lives within our body. So we need sensory experiences to one, engage safely and also to process. We often talk a lot about this concept called communicative musicality, which is really about like how primary caregivers and their like very, very new babies, they communicate to each other through different sounds and kind of like coos and ahs and um, just kind of replicating one another's sounds. And you're not speaking to one another, but you're completely kind of in sync with one another and you're entrained and you use that as a way to regulate your nervous system to feel really safe and connected with another human being. And much in the same way, every time you play music, like a musical instrument with another person or you're singing with another person, actually the the beat of the music that's helping you to entrain and move in sync with another person's nervous system. And that um, it's kind of like it gives you this visceral experience of being socially connected to people around you rather than talking about, oh, I'm really connecting with you here. But your body is like, oh, wow, this is what it feels like to be in rhythm with another human being. And that's so important in the context of trauma. When one, we fall out of sync with our own rhythms and the rhythms around us. But two, um, when you've experienced relational trauma and other people become unsafe, being able to engage in kind of a visceral nervous system level helps you to slowly train back and, and engage with feelings of trust and safety in relationships again. When it comes to therapeutic work and especially trauma work, you you do see it in stages like this or as a practitioner, you're kind of thinking in stages. So right at the start, you think about all the ways in which you can create safety within the relationship and safety could look like, okay, you don't talk about experiences, but 
um, you know, you're sharing snippets of songs that really resonate with you and you just kind of test the waters. You're like building. Um, and as a therapist, I build safety by, by listening, by acknowledging, by validating so that that other person is like, okay, this is someone that I can trust with some of the deep stuff that's going on within me. And then from safety, then you start to kind of move into more of a processing space. And rather than just being like, oh, okay, I hear you, I hear you, then it starts to become more like, okay, should we should we write something, like another song related to this topic? Is there something you want to say? Or do you want to tell me more about the lyrics? Like do you want to verbally explain what's going on for you as you listen? Um and then from there, you kind of move into making uh, meaning. And and that, again, looks really different for everyone. It's always like the, the method is different, but your thinking changes. And that could look like, um, for a lot of people, it looked like moving from individual therapy into group therapy. So you're starting to be able to engage back and connect with others through a medium like music, which is kind of fun and engaging and safe. But that's one way in which you start start to rebuild and reconnect out with the world, right? Or it could look like you start to find music as a tool to help you in other areas of your life. Yeah, I can totally imagine it being being so different for for every single person in the same way that your traditional, um, I guess, just talk therapy um, goes as well. Um, and you recently co-published a chapter on trauma-informed music therapy. Um, so I would love to know a little bit about um, what what does trauma-informed mean? Essentially, we were talking about how trauma-informed practice in music therapy, often people talk about purely using music for regulation. There's a steady beat and that allows everyone to, co- to get in train with the beat regulate their nervous system, and that's it. Often that's kind of the level in which trauma-informed practice is seen in music therapy. But for us, we were really trying to um, critique that and talk about how, um, again, when you just think, okay, well, a beat is going to entrain someone, there's a lot of nuance to that because that 4-4 beat, that's a very Western beat. That's what in the Western world is a steady beat, right? But that can look really confusing and really oppressive for people of colour, for people from different cultures. And, you know, when it comes to kind of group therapy, people often um, talk about the success of the group being that everyone was playing the same beat in time, when actually in many other cultures, we play music in a way that complements one another, right? It really highlights our collectivist ways in which we function. So we're not all playing the same 4-4 beat, but actually we're adding sounds to complement everyone's beat and that creates an overall sound. But in some cases, some music therapists really miss that. They don't see that because they don't have an understanding of culturally informed practice, right? So we use that... um, that chapter to critique the use of the word trauma-informed. Like trauma-informed isn't just about using a beat to regulate people, but it's actually about understanding the systemic issues that cause trauma and also being an advocate in those spaces as well. 
I mean, you said that this piece was very important for you to publish something that unpacks um, systemic violence in the context of safety and healing. I want to know a little bit more about why um, that, maybe if you have a personal sort of reason or some things that you've observed um, that made that really significant for you. For me, when I started Shapes and Sounds, that was actually maybe during an intense experience of burnout. Like I'd been working at this organisation for five years and just witnessing kids slipping through the cracks, losing young people to suicide. It was just so incredibly traumatic and the systems of our organisation were so unsafe, not just for the young people but of practitioners of colour. I, I think the things that I saw there and the nuances that were always missed in therapeutic work, not just in our organisation but across the sector, I felt really debilitated, I guess. I think sometimes it's like when you feel so stuck, that's when burnout occurs, like you just feel so like weighed down by everything. And, and being able to write this chapter, I wrote this probably at the beginning of 2020, it was just a really important way for me to process what I'd seen and to to kind of lift the lid on that as well. You're listening to Race Matters. I'm Sharika Hellaludin. We're hearing a conversation between Malika Gazula and music therapist Asami Koike on what led her to start a specific directory for Asian Australian mental health and the personal journey that has led her to unravel what it is to be a trauma-informed music therapist. So I, I would love to know throughout your um, work if you've ever um, seen the ways that racism has impacted people's physical health. Mm, yes, most definitely, yeah. Okay, where to begin, hey? Racial trauma, you know, it affects the body just as trauma does and the way in which trauma affects the body is that we have this thing called the window of tolerance. It's this amount of kind of stress and distress that your nervous system can cope with before it shifts into kind of dysregulated states or like fight or flight or starts to kind of zone out um, and and disassociate from what's happening around. But there's this kind of optimal, optimal bit, the green zone in between where we can kind of engage, where we can talk, where we can think before reacting. But experiences of trauma, they they shrink that window of tolerance and it gets smaller and smaller, which means that um, when something happens, like just say, you know, someone turns around and looks at you, then you might suddenly feel like you're under attack when really if that window of tolerance perhaps was wider or more open, then you would just see it as someone turning around and looking at you and, and you're not jumping and you're not in a hypervigilant state. And of course, the more you're kind of in these states of fear, of um, hypervigilance, of stress, then there's more like, you know, adrenaline, cortisol running in your body, the stress hormones, which then lowers your immune system. 
changes your digestion. Um, if we think energetically, it kind of depletes our energy as well. So all of these things, like it, it manifests differently for different people, like whether that looks like you get eczema or whether that looks like something goes on for you in your organs. But it, it's acknowledging that a lot of people, a lot of people of colour, a lot of racialized people, we live in constant stress, right, especially if we've experienced things young we live in this state of always being on always being like hypervigilant always being suspicious and that is exhausting i would say more than anything it's exhausting right and then on top of that we talk about things like oh well you know if only asian people like if they had more confidence in the workforce then they can move up into positions of leadership but it's just like such a strange concept to think about when really it has nothing to do with confidence. But what we're talking about is personal safety, that a lot of people, we don't exist in the world feeling safe. So I would say that that's a huge physical manifestation of, um, of racial trauma. That hypervigilance, exhaustion, lack of safety, having higher cortisol levels. When Asami started talking about the impacts of racial trauma on the body, I felt really familiar with what she was talking about. During my adolescence, my mental health reached its lowest point. I started to neglect self-care. One of the main things was taking care of my skin. I was constantly covered in scratches and ash, and this soon got worse I felt deeply ashamed of this and filled with self-loathing. Eventually, after years of hiding this, I revealed this habit to my psychologist. She mapped out to me how this was a bodily response very much connected to the racial trauma I had experienced. So when we've had so many years receiving this racist messaging that has an impact on both the mind and the body, how can we heal from this? It definitely resonates with me, not just people that I've worked with, but also myself. And I think what you said about how that internal experience becomes so physical, that's so true for so many of us, right? I would say for everyone it is, it's just that some people you notice and others you don't. You know, like you're doing things in a way, exactly as you say, like your coping mechanisms, you're doing that as a way to protect yourself and to feel safe this experience of like, you know, as a kid, people are targeting you because of your physical appearance, of the colour of your skin. And so then how does that manifest? It manifests in in you trying to kind of like take off that skin physically, right? You're, you're literally like trying to get rid of that skin in some way that you can. And it's so interesting how the body just works to always protect ourselves. One thing I want to say is that I would say the most annoying thing about like relational trauma or trauma that exists between human beings is that unfortunately it has to be worked out or healing can only occur in relationships. Let's say a very superficial trauma-informed therapy is all about, okay, let's regulate our breathing. Let's take deep breaths. Let's journal. Let's reflect. Let's do things to physically soothe our own nervous system, right? But actually trauma-informed practice is about finding ways in which we can safely be in relationship with other human beings again. 
So um, that means finding people that you feel safe with and you have to exercise and you have to practice um, finding your boundaries, exercising your boundaries and working out how to safely connect with another human being again, which is so incredibly hard when all the relationships around you have been really challenging. One way in which to think about this is you don't have to start with a human. Like if you're kind of right at the start of this journey and you might have experienced something really bad from another person and so that safety has been lost, you don't have to start with a human. You can actually start this practice of being in relationship with something like like even music. You know, people are often finding themselves in relationship with music. But even things like your your plants, your house plants, that's something that you're in relationship with. And then, of course, you've got animals and pets. That's why there's such a place for um, modality, modalities like pet therapy. And because um, obviously they're a living being, so you have to relate with them, you co-regulate with them, but it feels a lot safer because they're not the cause of your harm. So um, dogs are great. <laughs> I've got a dog who's like really like a cat. So it really helps with my boundaries. <laughs> I have to like really control my energy around him. Um, but but often that's like a building block in which to move to greater relational safety. And then you start to, to find people that you feel safe with and find communities that you feel safe with. And then on the other side of that, that's like kind of your individual work, right? And your individual process of healing. But then on the other side, um, you know, the work that you're doing, race matters, what we do at Shapes and Sounds, we also have to address um, and advocate for systemic change as well and, and bring these issues to light at a different level that, you know, it's not our responsibility to have to make the world a safer place, but it's important that we're kind of contributing to these causes and to this conversation, right? So there's kind of like that individual path to healing, but then when you feel strong, when you feel ready, that's when you you join more of that advocacy arm and you try to contribute to causes that are trying to make the world a safer place for everyone and making sure that you're not kind of like healing so that you can perpetuate oppression to other people because that definitely happens too. I mean, yeah, coming and, and revealing that to my therapist was a huge step for me. Um, and it made me realize that maybe having awareness of how um, our experiences um, impact those kinds of physical choices that we make um, can, can can have like maybe some possibly some good impacts on managing those behaviors. Um, but I, yeah, I would love to know that um, in your sort of music therapy work, um, how does like the how does awareness play a role in helping us make, I guess, practical changes to what we're doing that may be negative for ourselves. Yeah, maybe even just even like beyond music therapy, right? Just kind of as a as a human, it's that pause between the stimulus and the response. If you can find that little bit in between of that breath, that moment, and you can be present and you can be like, okay, am I going to do this or am I going to do this? Am I going to react or am, or can I tolerate this distress? And it's the more that you can expand that, that you can be present right there in that moment, in that 
that choice, that tiny bit of choice before between stimulus and response, by expanding that, by being present, I should say, that's how change really occurs, right? You're like, oh, isn't it interesting that every time someone says this, I go and do this. And coming at things with a sense of curiosity rather than, because often what happens in that pause is like, Every time someone says this, I go and do this and I'm such an idiot. (laughs) Like we're always so hard on ourselves. But in that moment, if there's some way in which we can come at life with a sense of curiosity of like, oh, isn't that interesting that that happens? I I wonder what's going on there. And we can kind of talk to ourselves with that patience and that curiosity. Um, Then that opens up one our our ability to journey backwards and see all the things that impact our behavior but also it frees us up to see all the possible opportunities and other alternative pathways that exist um so awareness is definitely key for for changing behavior right but then i think what's really interesting and really important is that there needs to be something Um, we also need to talk about taking action because often we spend a lot of time thinking and thinking and thinking. And especially if you're a smart person, you know, your brain can think and analyze and remember and process and link all the dots between why and how you do everything. But without actually physically doing something, without taking action, um, your your body actually doesn't really shift so much. You can think for a long time, but it's those moments where you take action like, oh, I'm going to text that person or I'm going to have a conversation and say that I felt like this. And those moments of taking action help your body to feel like, oh, I've got my back and I'm going to take action and set my boundaries and I'm going to do what's right for me. But without that piece of taking action, then we sort of sit in this state of always just thinking, thinking, thinking and ruminating. It's always so important, and this is what we spoke about a lot in our chapter as well, that trauma exists within the systems that we exist within right now, right? Trauma is not um, set, like racism is a systemic issue and it, it exists because of the systemic structures. So it's really important for us to have this understanding of the systems of oppression around us. I hope people will understand how violent it really is in like a physical sense. Um, I think like a lot of people, they know what racism is. They know that it's like you know, discriminating against people based off of the way they look, their identity, where they're from, different culture. But I think what people don't really know is what happens after you've been receiving that for so long. Like, does anything happen at all? I think a lot of people think nothing really happens and you can be resilient and you can just kind of like, it's just something you come to terms with and are able to brush off and um, it like it doesn't go any anywhere deeper. Um, And I know for a fact, based on my own experience and based on so many, you know, stories that we hear every day about what people are experiencing who are not white, I guess I just wanted to really show that 
it goes beyond just the mental and it can affect the body in a whole bunch of different ways um, that you can't always really see. So I think that that's what I wanted to get out of it. I just wanted people to see um, a new side to is a real good example that is visceral in the sense that there was something very like kind of concrete physical that happened that was clearly as a result of something. I think that connection's really interesting. Honestly, I still suffer with this problem. It's come to a point now where the more confidence that I get with sharing it with people and having it validated and understood and perceived by people like Asami um, is really kind of supporting me along um, and I guess motivating me or even just the awareness alone and to hear from a therapist that this is okay and this is normal and you know you are fine or, or this is a result of what you've experienced um it's just that even just that awareness is already sort of pulling me in the right direction of where i want to be on my journey that is all for race matters this week i'm sharika hallelujah You've been listening to a conversation between producer Malika Gazula and music therapist, founder of Shapes and Sounds, and Asian-Australian mental health advocate, Asami Koikar. I want to thank the two of them for opening up an intense but really needed conversation around the nuances of racism, mental health, and embodied responses to trauma and oppression. We want to make note that this is just one story when it comes to these issues and that no story could ever cover the depth and complexities of what it is to talk about race, trauma and mental health. If this episode brought up some complex or heavy things for you, you can head to our show notes where we have left a heap of resources, including directories for therapists and practitioners who work specifically with communities of colour. Race matters. 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 Race matters.